0: Welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. My guest today is Dr. Ali Black from the School of Education at University of the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia. Ali tells stories of courage and care and connection, stories that grew out of painful interactions with what she calls the academic machine and feeling like a failure. She talks about creating a different way of engaging in academia, one that is based on authenticity and meaning, on connecting to what is important on being and becoming, and on creating a more caring and collaborative culture. An important step in this for her was reaching out to colleagues and forming a women's writing group to write together and to explore their versions of what slow scholarship might mean. Just advance notice too, though, that there was a bit of a delay on the line when we were talking, and that made it interesting trying to have a fluent conversation. But still, I know I found this conversation really deeply thought-provoking and trust it will speak to you too. So, Ali, thank you for talking with me. I'm really delighted to speak with you and especially to speak with someone who comes from a different disciplinary area to the people that I've normally spoken to.
1: Thanks, Geraldine. I'm really looking forward to talking with you today.
0: And... The way we got in touch, it's quite interesting. You just emailed me after listening to one of the podcasts and it seemed like you have a really interesting story to tell. And it happens that you come from my home state, but we've never met each other. Just to give a bit of background, can you just say very briefly where you're coming from, career-wise?
1: Yeah, well, I guess um, I've been in academia for a long time. Um, I added it up and it's my 20th second year and so that feels a really long time but I feel like um, despite that I've had a very slow career with lots of what um, academia would call career interruptions, having children and taking leave of various kinds and um, mm. taking unpaid leave and relocating and uh, teaching in schools in between times between universities uh, and that sort of thing. I've um, worked at three universities now and uh,
0: I and started. What's your off, disciplinary area?
1: Um, well, I'm education is is my area, and specifically early mm-hmm. childhood education yeah. uh, is my specialization. But I've also become very interested um, since my PhD, which was way back in 2000, become very interested in narrative inquiry, and um, I guess that's become more focused in arts-based research and more recently that's mm-hmm. turned itself into uh, life writing and creative writing and researchers as writing. So I play in two spaces really. Mm. I play in my discipline space and I play in my narrative arts-based researcher space and, mm-hmm. and I guess I'm enjoying yeah. having um, – those two spaces to to become uh, the academic that I'm becoming.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. So I like the becoming. Can you say a little bit more about the, the the leaves and the disruptions and the breaks that you said you had over those past 22 years?
1: Yeah, well, it's hard to know. Having children, whether that's being planned or not, um, but so I, I guess they... Um, They weren't planned as such, but they were – they are what happens when you're a female academic. And so, um, I took maternity leave uh, for my first child and then took six months – had six months off and then came back to work. Uh, And then with my second child, I I ended up taking two years off. So I took maternity leave and I took long service leave and I took a year of Mm -hmm. unpaid leave. And uh, later, my mother passed away and I took a couple of months bereavement leave. And following, uh, I guess, that grieving time, we we ended up in a place called Agnes Water. Uh, My mother was buried not far from there. So we, we went there for her funeral and uh, my husband is a surfer and so we stayed at Agnes Water and he bounded out of the surf one day and said, let's live here. And so we ended up then working towards a <laughs> sea change and that meant time-changing uh, wow. universities and uh, little break times like that. So, So I guess they've yeah. been planned yet unplanned, Um, things and I guess that's probably began my writing about the blurring between the personal and the professional uh, because I felt like some of those uh, things were mm-hmm. deemed by the academy as interruptions and as things that shouldn't be talked about or that shouldn't appear with your track record or your early career researcher status and things like that. Um, so I guess mm-hmm. in my writing and my research, I've been troubling those sorts of things.
0: So this is sort of saying that the professional face we put on always deletes those aspects of our lives, which are part of being an academic.
1: I think we feel a pressure that we have to um, put on a professional face and that we certainly don't talk about uh, being up all night with our child who had colic or uh, feeling in a terrible emotional state because we're grieving the loss of a loved one. Those sorts of things uh, are meant to Mm. be set aside. And, um, uh, you know, I recall coming back to to work after – some space after burying my mother, and uh, a well-known and well-respected professor came up and said, you know, how's your research going? And I said, oh, I hadn't um, written for a little while, mm-hmm. and he started saying, well, you, Ali, you've just got to do it. You can't, um, you know, you know. he started giving me a little mini lecture, and I just had to stop him and say, "Yeah." Uh, you know, I get where you're coming from, but this is what's just happened in my life. And I think it might have been a wake-up call for him, but it was also a reminder for me that the Academy needed to recognize that we're human beings and and these things happen. Um, mm. And so I guess what I'm doing now is writing about um, these personal, professional blurrings and... Um, yeah, I mean, I'm intrigued about how we might cultivate ethics of care and caring where we acknowledge our human dimensions and actually care for one another as part of our work.
0: Mm. Have you had any experiences of where that has been done well, and you felt that sort of support and care?
1: Well, um, something that I guess happened serendipitously, and which I initiated inadvertently. Um, I was just visiting some students, being their prac supervisor, and I, um, I was. It was the anniversary of my mother's death. Prac- and prac- being practical. Yeah, practical and it just happened to be the anniversary of my mum's death and so I was in the car after visiting some students and I was reflecting on how it would be really great to have mum to talk to and to share my stories with. And then I kind of had an epiphany and it was like she was giving me this idea um, and I had an epiphany that I'm surrounded, actually, by wonderful women friends uh, who have amazing lives and wisdom to share. And so I thought, well, I've, I think we need to share that. I think we need to share our stories. So I, I thought about it for a while and, and let my ideas simmer and then I asked um, a handful of my close friends and I guess because I'm in academia and education they did all happen to be uh, educators either in schools or in universities and um, that just seemed to be an aside really. I was thinking of them as as friends who'd given input into my life and I asked them would they be willing to uh, write a story about um, their lives and, and it could be anything that they wanted to share, uh, really. I, um, I asked them to think about... Um, what it was like, I guess, to be in the afternoon of our lives because we're all middle-aged women and I shared a little bit about where I felt Mm -hmm. I was in this stage of my life. And so I, I just asked them to think about a story that would be unique to them and was really open-ended. I said it might be about struggle or it might be about joy, it might be about blessing, it might be about learning, um, it can be about your hopes and dreams, it might be what you'd like to tell your younger self or your older self or anything at all. And um, everyone Mm. I asked was really touched and uh, felt honoured to be asked and they embraced that invitation. And so For a year, we just um, engaged in this process. So we spent a couple of months where we just listened to ourselves really and tried to understand the story that we might share or tell or the learning that we had uh, engaged with that we might want to share or tell. So we spent a couple of months just letting that percolate and then we um, set aside a, a time where we would come together and share our first 1,000 words. And so we did that and had a little workshop and we all just shared what we thought our story was going to be about. And that was so incredibly moving. And it was moving because I was the only one they knew. Um, So I knew all of them, Mm -hmm. but they trusted me to... um, create a space where they could share with women that they didn't know. And so after the end of that workshop, and it was through Zoom technology, so it wasn't face-to-face, we were all scattered across Australia, um, we oh, we shed tears and we laughed and we... Um, just found a connection that was incredible, and so a few months later we kept writing and we responded to each other's story, giving gentle feedback about what we thought the stories were about and what we thought the strengths were and what we'd like to hear more about. And so we worked on, on those stories for a couple of more months and then met together for um, you know another draft. And again, the experience was, was so rich and connecting. And I think out of that, we just discovered how amazing women are, and particularly women in, in that middle phase, that afternoon phase of their lives. Um, what we all deal with and grapple with and manage. And, um, strangely that writing um, began to spill over into our academic writing and work and we stumbled across this notion of slow scholarship that Alison Mounts and uh, a stack of her colleagues have have written about and um, we read books. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a book called The Slow Professor uh, and more and more people are writing about Slow scholarship in academia and the importance of ethics, of caring, and the importance of of research as mm-hmm. friendship and and um, being human and and leaving behind all this um, measurement and competition and individualization and these unproductive mm-hmm. ways of being and actually um, trying other ways of being an academic. And so we've been writing mm-hmm. together collectively in academic spaces and presenting at conferences and um, it, the I guess the energy and the momentum for us as individuals but also as academics has been enormous and unexpected and so therefore a, gr- a wonderful gift and surprising and so it's kind of helped us all be a bit more deliberate and intentional in terms of how we work in academia and what we let it do to us.
0: Yeah. Can I just go back because um, I, I want to pick up on the ways in which you're being more deliberate and intentional, but just to go back to is, you know, I, I think it's brilliant that rather than just sit there and go, oh, I wish I had someone to talk to, I wish my mother was here, you, you, you did go and just do something and acted on, on a, a, a gut feeling that this was something you needed to do. And it just seems like so much has come out of it. I'm also interested just to hear what were some of the common themes and experiences that you had um, as your stories emerged that you were sharing together?
1: I think um, I guess what we came to understand is just the complexity of lives that we're living. So, um if I just talk you through some of the, the personal uh, nature of the stories, one of the writers um, has a, a child with Down syndrome. One of the writers um, was trying for IVF for um, many, many years unsuccessfully and she wrote about feeling a mm-hmm. failure. Uh, One of the writers was talking about her um, grieving for her husband. When she began her story, her husband was actually alive, but he died in the process of writing her story. Mm. And so her story tracked um, living with an alcoholic. Uh, And then we had stories just, I guess, of the the regular things that we negotiate, being well, not overworking, uh, remembering our families and giving time to our families and uh, wellness, mental health, uh, depression, uh, those sorts of things. So what we came to understand is just how mm. full our lives are and what amazing, Women, we are really because we're negotiating all these things, and you know that's without looking into workplaces and workloads, and uh, you know just our life histories were were huge, and uh, so I think. Another theme that came out of it was just the importance of listening to ourselves, but also sharing and responding. So responding became a very important theme that it's one thing to share your story and mm-hmm. to uh, be vulnerable and, you know, engage in that kind of uh, process where you're willing to disclose and expose aspects of your life. But it's very, very important that someone um, is there to respond and say, I hear you, or this this is important, mm-hmm. or you're amazing. And I guess that's why I emailed you um, as part of that lesson, is that I stumbled across your website. I gained um, inspiration and support from listening to the podcasts and from the encouragement that you have there. And I wanted to say to you, Geraldine, thank you so much for creating this site. It's really meaningful and it's really helpful. So I think responding is, is really important. And I think, um, I guess another thing that mm. I, I really value is that often we receive a lot of criticism and I love that quote by Theodore Roosevelt that says, it's not the critic who counts, but it's the man or we say the woman in the arena with the blood, sweat and tears. And and I think that's what we've got to remember is, um, you know, it, it's we're in the arena and, and we need to be valuing each other for, for actually having the courage to stay in the arena and to do our, to do our best and to care. Yeah.
0: yeah. So these are really, and I, I thank you for contacting me. I did really appreciate it as well. And and the fact that it's led to being able to just chat is brilliant and to share this with so many people as well. Um. The values that you're talking about there are so different to the values that are embodied in the way academia is being run at the moment, isn't it?
1: Yeah, uh, it's so confronting um, because at the same time as we um, have engaged in this empowerment, it's, it's two years on really since we've been writing together and And there are spaces and phases, I guess, where we all can fall back into the pit, if you like, or into the mire where uh, we do get caught up Mm. in the managerialism and the accountability. And it is paralyzing and it is like a a steady poisoning, uh, you know, say, if you want to go for a promotion or if you're on probation or if you're told that at your particular level you need to bring in X amount of research funding and things like that so we're constantly uh, feeling like we're not enough and um, and and so it is really very important I think that we we try to at whatever level we are, change the culture, change the local culture so that we can change yes. the wider culture because it is in yep. the end political um, and yep. and the personal becomes political. So I think we do have to make decisions to, to um, care for one another and to support one another, to read each other's drafts, to respond with a supportive email, to mm-hmm. do those caring everyday things that probably don't count in terms of, um, you know, an application for something or an award for something, mm-hmm. but they count in terms of the quality of our lives and our values.
0: Yeah. So um, it's an interesting tension though, isn't it, that many of us, you know, and many of the people that I've spoken to, uh, we recognise that, this accounting, accountability culture and uh, what gets counted isn't isn't helping isn't supporting and is creating all sorts of pressures with impacts in all sorts of ways and yet we're still within the system and you talked about progressing or being recognized and valued and this change process of changing making changes locally and and trying to affect wider changes there's a time lag so how do you negotiate the fact that you're trying to do a different way of being an academic and doing academia but you're still within the system where numbers count and uh, th- there are different values being uh, held up? Oh, it's certainly difficult and I've got some
1: wonderful colleagues who are, who are part of the Women Who Write group um, who have written a book uh, written a chapter in a book called "The Academic Machine," and uh, you know we're up. We are part of that academic machine, whether we like it or not. And we, in some ways, perpetuate the functioning of that academic machine. So it is. It is a tension. Um, mm-hmm. But I think I think it's worth having a go. I think we can um, be afraid and say, "Well, I can't. I have to do it this way. I have to get so many publications. I have to be competitive. I have to." whatever you know we think the uni rhetoric is telling us we have to be like. But I think what I've discovered um, is that you um, you're more alive when you follow what matters to you. And so I guess I've been trialing this for myself for the last, Year or so. So perhaps I need to put it in context. Um, When in my career interruptions, when I'm shifting from universities to universities, my previous university before this one, I was um, a senior lecturer there for six years. And when we decided we needed to relocate again, um, because where we were didn't have a school, a high school for my children close, and they were travelling two to four hours um, each day and that just became unsustainable we decided we needed to move so I I let the university that I'm at now um, know that I um, was looking for a space and and, you know would they let me know that there if any places were coming up and I got communication straight back saying oh yes there'd definitely be some positions there'd be um, probably a D and a C and a B you know So, when I talk about um, Ds, Cs and Bs, whatever, um, so a D would be an associate professor position, a C would be a senior lecturer position, a B would be a lecturer position. So, I'd been a lecturer for um, many years at my first university and senior lecturer for um, six years at, at the second university and so I was hoping at least to maintain that position or to upgrade to um, be an associate professor and my publications and my outputs and all those things that count were pretty good and um, I, I I believe that um, I should have been a shoe-in for that sort of position. But of course as um luck would have mm-hmm. it. They didn't advertise for any other positions than a level B, which was a lecturer position, which I'd been way back, um, you know, six years ago and I'd held that position for, for eight years or something previous to that. So uh, in order to get employment, I figured, well, better to get a foot in the door. And so I applied for the position and I – was told I was a successful applicant for that position. Now, they wouldn't allow me to negotiate because they said the position that that advertised was a B and so that was what they were offering. Um, So that meant a a reduction of at least $30,000 a year. It meant um, Mm. a return to a lower uh, level and... I had to be on probation at that lower level for three years and they initially told me that I'd be able to go for a promotion straight away. But of course, when I got to the university and looked at the fine print, you had to be employed for two years before you could apply for promotion. So out of that experience, even though I got employment and I don't want to sound ungrateful, I really felt like a failure. I felt like... Um, Walking into a new position, I wasn't valued. What I brought with me wasn't valued or recognised. And to add salt Mm -hmm. into the wound, six months later, they appointed someone from the unsuccessful applicant pool. They made an unadvertised senior lecturer position for that person. And so that just opened up the wound. What? Yes. So that just opened up the wound all over again. And so for... Uh, the first two years there, I felt quite um, wounded as as a person and as an academic. And of course, they um, they weren't backward in coming forward in loading me up with senior lecturer type um, responsibilities and things. So I felt pretty annoyed about that. But but then at the same time, um, in that time frame was when I began this what I call the wise women writing with my friends um, Mm -hmm. where we were writing stories of our lives and somehow that became a a saving space and it created this space for slow scholarship and actually listening to myself and what mattered to me and recognising that there were caring uh, people around me and so then when that spilled into my academic life and we we became rather prolific in our writing and um, what, you know, that track record building type notion of publication and, and conference presentation, mm-hmm. I found um, my energy for my work picking up and i um I I just found myself separating from the despair of the academic machine and found my own ways of working and what mattered Mm. to me. So I ended up um, putting together a promotion application, which I think was quite unusual, where I actually did say, um, I've done some things that are those intangible things that aren't recognised in these boxes, and I'd list them. And I uh, put in... Um, community engagement type things that had rippled out of this story writing. And so, you know, I've run some workshops on women writing and we've presented in regional areas and there's been a great interest and momentum about um, just regular women writing their stories and valuing life writing as a, as a strategy for, for uh, listening and, and sharing mm-hmm. our lives. And so I guess what... Um, I did was I I figured it's a bit like a CV. I can't wish to be somebody else. My CV is my CV and that's Mm -hmm. the beauty of my CV is that it's mine and it reflects my life and my work. So I kind of created this promotion application that was very much like me and I inserted images and uh, visual examples of of contributions that I'd made and Twitter feeds and, and things like that and uh, thankfully I got promotion, promoted <laughs> so I'm back to where I, I began um, but I guess what that showed me is, is hey, I, I, I got that without playing the game perfectly, without playing the game that I thought they wanted me yeah. to play and so that's given me confidence as well uh, that uh, in the end I can only be myself. Mm. And I'm very good at being myself. Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's so much to think about there. Just in turning around an experience that was initially experienced as so demoralising and disempowering and frustrating. I, I was sitting here feeling all sorts of emotions on your behalf around the injustice of that situation. But just the ways in which you turned it around and and it seemed to be the importance of connecting to who you were, the values that were important to you and somehow finding a way to express that, that you still were able to relate to the system enough that could um, enable the promotion to be accepted.
1: So I guess that's why I find it encouraging that I think we tell ourselves that we we have to do it their way and perhaps we don't. Perhaps we Mm. can do some of it their way but Mm. um, perhaps we're more productive and more, um, I don't know, more engaged, more alive and professional when we're doing it our way within some of their frameworks. And I guess the other thing I'd like to say is, you know, it wasn't all this lovely happy story. Failure is pretty devastating and, you know, I had – um I you know I had depression. I felt pretty low um, during this phase, and but what I came to realize is that failure is actually a gift because there's nowhere to go you you're you're at the bottom of the heap, so um you can only decide well what will I do now and so it became an invitation in a yes. way and a gift to go, well what do I want to do differently? And what isn't sustainable? What am I not prepared mm. to do anymore? And um, I've—I mean, I still have to remind myself. You, my office is surrounded by uh, inspirational things and, and messages. And I've taken up um, planning. If anybody's into planning, where I decorate my diary <laughs> with washi tape and and inspirational quotes and and happy little things, but Mm -hmm. I've just written something in the last couple of days that I read where I've got it on my desk and it says, is this task vital? Does it really matter to me or someone I love and care about? Give my energy to what matters to me Mm. and to what inspires me. So um, I probably... Oh, well, I may as well say it on tape. I, what I do as a result of that sort of thinking is that I don't go to any faculty meetings anymore. Uh, my diary used to be filled up with so many meetings that I didn't want to go to, but I thought I should be seen at or mm-hmm. or should go to. So mm-hmm. I, I rarely go mm-hmm. to any of those things. I don't go to anything that I find mm. deadening to my soul or my joy or my sense of hope, if I can help mm. it. Sometimes yeah. you have to go to some yeah. things, um, but I take along my happy planner yeah. and I look, you know, I distract myself with, with um, you know, things that I I want to take in this space, um, ideas that I want to be pondering on. So you surround yourself yeah, or I'll watch my breathing, or something. You know, I distract myself
0: from from the fray of the terrible meeting, and um... but I'm I'm always a bit torn by this as well because I think what you've said is just so important about uh, just checking in with ourselves all the time about why we're doing things and what are our motivations and. Where is our centre and core? What gives us joy? Where, where we think we can contribute? But I'm also conscious that we're part of a bigger system and that to make the bigger system work, sometimes there are jobs that need to be done and that we all need to contribute and that if I don't play my part, then it puts extra burden on on other people, my colleagues. And I, sometimes I find it hard. I think it can be hard to navigate that balance. What are the things that we that are to be contributed to, even if they're not really part of our, you know, uh, little jolts of joy that we love doing?
1: Yes, uh, I'm I'm certainly not saying don't contribute. Um, I guess what I'm saying is find say yes to the the spaces and places to contribute that um, you're going to like a lot more, or that uh, you find meaningful, or that yeah. that fit into your values so get out the university strategic plan and if it's talking about sustainability and that's something that matters to you then say yes to the projects that are facilitating that vision and that strategy and Um, You know, those values. Uh, If you're concerned about the welfare of students and um, their success, then certainly in your teaching, uh, you're going to be wanting to promote that. You're going to be wanting to be engaging in the wider university um, committees that support student success. So I'm certainly not saying don't contribute, but there are. There are aspects in our everyday mm. life that if we said yes to everything, we would be overwhelmed, overworked, and we wouldn't be able to focus on what matters to us so i guess you know, I know guess when I say yeah. that question about um, you know does it really matter to me or someone I love and care about or love or care about I've got a wonderful head of school who's my immediate supervisor, and she asks us could You know, we ensure that there's good staff representation at this deadening meeting. Well, I will go because I care about her and I care about our school and how our school's represented. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I guess that changes my framing. So Mm -hmm. instead of thinking, I've got to go to this meeting and if I don't go, I'll I'll look bad or, um, you know, it's kind of a different frame. And so it doesn't have that drain of... um, I don't, yeah. I
0: do know, energy or shoulds, worth. The shoulds. Yeah, the shoulds. Yeah, yeah. This, it's you're also reminding me a lot of the work around strengths um, that Martin Seligman and his people have done mm. in the positive psychology area, which is very much talking about recognizing yeah. what your key strengths are and bringing them into what you do. And I think that's also sort of a, a complementary view. To values, it's understanding what your values are, but also what you're good at and what you can contribute. And when you're working from your strengths, you also find a place of energy and uh, and joy and happiness. Actually,
1: mm. yeah, it is being reflective. And joy isn't a word that we typically associate with academia. <laughs> uh, and you're absolutely mm. right. I mean, I think that no. work that work by Martin Seligman is is Important that positive education and um, where we are focusing on our our character strengths and, you know, I love those those character strength tests where you can actually get some insight into who you are. I think self-understanding is really critical and because my field is education, Mm
0: -hmm. I
1: I think it's even more critical because um, Parker Palmer, who I love, he says we teach who we are. So you can be, you know, have the best behaviour management strategies in Australia and like many countries in the world are, are full-on about the quality teaching and assessing how, the standard of quality of our teachers and our pre-service teachers. But ultimately, they're going to teach who they mm-hmm. are. And so these kind of um, ways of knowing mm-hmm. ourself and values uh, and, and emotional intelligence is all very, very important.
0: Yeah, but not reflected in any of our metrics at the moment.
1: No, no, but perhaps we can bring it into impact somehow.
0: Mm. So uh, you said before about being very deliberate and intentional, and you also talked about you know working at making changes locally and making wider changes. You mentioned a couple of things about just uh, responding to people and acknowledging and recognizing. Um, you've talked about some of the things you're doing now about how you make choices. Um, and more importantly, why you're making choices. What um, what might be some other ways that you would talk about being deliberate, intentional, or affecting local change? Um. I think it's
1: making time for those human interactions, whether it's in your research or whether it's in your engagement with community or your collegial relationships. So I was inspired by um, mm-hmm. the Slow Scholarship work and you know they have a whole lot of suggestions in their article. Uh, the title of it, if people want to search for it, is called For Slow Scholarship. A feminist politics of resistance through collective action in the neoliberal university, and Alison Mounts M O U N T Z is the first author in that.
0: I'll, I'll put links to all of these on the bottom of the webpage as well for people to access.
1: Yes, so so some of the strategies that they talk about, which I guess I'm I've been doing inadvertently, but also, I guess, since I've been engaging with this kind of writing and reading you know, to be more deliberate about, is actually talking about these slow strategies and um, making time uh, with peers and colleagues to have conversations and to respond to them, to listen to what they're finding overwhelming and I guess to urge them to say no to those wild expectations of productivity and to just do what they can do and be well uh, at the same time, also I think um, it's things like valuing quality over quantity and valuing thinking. And for universities, mm-hmm. I feel like thinking is becoming a quality that's actually getting lost um, in our effort to be to please the bean counters. So and so I think we need to recognise, mm. we need time to think. So when you're busy filling in spreadsheets, documenting yeah. all the work that you're doing and your workload uh, documents and things, it doesn't capture uh, time well and generally they try and limit the time. So I know at, at our university they'll say, okay, we'll give you a maximum of 25 hours a year for research supervision if you're supervising with another Supervisor, now twenty-five hours a year, um, I would use up in three meetings. Um, you know, in terms of reading mm-hmm. your students' work and uh, responding and having conversations. So, you know, though that um, view of time isn't realistic, and it doesn't value yeah. what we do. So, I guess, I guess it's having courage and engendering courage into our Uh, with each other to say, well, let's count in some different ways and we do need to value time and we do need to value thinking. Mm -hmm. And so some of the things we need to do is organise spaces and uh, what we do differently. So I think things like encouraging writing groups and um, encouraging a common time where you tend to meet in the staff staff room and, and... just have conversations, like actually having some intentional conversations mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. arrange. Um, uh, I think yep. that's important yep. uh, as well. And to, I guess, one of the biggest things is just yeah. caring yeah. for one another.
0: Mm. Yeah. So we do have a delay here. It's quite interesting. I was just going to say that Kia Hook talked about having their Fika in Sweden where they make everyone yeah. come and have coffee, which is an example of that.
1: Yes, I think taking time to meet, to discuss ideas and and often, I mean, I know the pressure myself, I'll go, uh, I'll be in my office and then people will be calling in and I'll be, you know, there's a little voice in the back of my head going, I'm not getting what I was trying to get done done. I'm having this conversation and I really need to get my work done and I've got to actually stop that little voice and go, no, this is important. This connection and caring Mm. and listening is important. I need to give time to this because it matters and it affects um, our collegial culture. And uh, I might be the only person in this person's day who's going to listen. So I want to be that person. So, um, you know, it is taking care. Of others, but also I guess the other thing is that we have to take care of ourselves before we can take care of other people. So, yeah. I guess I, I've uh, the thing about yeah. my planning that I was talking about before. I've got a planner where, um, and my my little girl introduced me to it. So we're mad planner addicts. So that involves stickers and decoration and things like that. So what I did, I've, I had a crazy couple of weeks where I just went through, got ahead of myself and I planned way into the future. I'm up to about September, but all my weekend spots I've decorated with pictures of, um, of tea and cats and sleeping in and um, family pictures and whatever. And so there is no space in my diary for work tasks. So I used to work on weekends often and I used to think I, I have to work on weekends because yeah. that'll make it easier for the upcoming week and it'll take the pressure off. And it just never did. All it meant was I never got mm. a break. So mm. just mm. in my planner, now that there's absolutely no space to write in any jobs, i I've got reading books and I've got all these sort of guilt offerings to say you'll read a book. You won't, you know, and it'll be a chiclet book. It won't be a theory book. Um, And and so, I'm making different choices where my weekends are my sacred self-care, family care times. And gee, that's made a huge difference, just doing that. Uh, So, I still tend to work long hours, but also they're on things that matter to me. So they might be on community projects related to sustainability or they might be on funding that I want to get to support an initiative that I think uh, matters for well-being. Uh, So I'm still putting in hours but I guess I'm changing the hours that I put, you know, what I'm focusing that work on. The other thing
0: I'm trying to do is not. You, You also talked about a very different energy when you're doing those things that you care about before that's where you can still work long hours but it's it's a different type of work there's a different energy and um, engagement with it because it's work that you do care for that's
1: right it is it's very different and um, and I think that's a signal Uh, it's a signal for us as human beings because that that tells us, our body tells us and our energy levels tell us and our creativity Mm. levels tell us when something is helpful for us and when something is not helpful for us. So I think, Mm. um, yeah, Mm. I I think we need to listen to ourselves and take care of ourselves. And and I was just reading, um, there's a blog that I read um, by Agnes I don't, I'm not sure of her how to say her surname. It's like Bosconert or something like that. And she talks about um, it's it's a slow slow scholarship blog, and I'll send you the link so that you can put it there. But she was saying today about not mm-hmm. forgetting about the importance of downtime. That that's a time when. Um, often your creative thoughts gel and something that you haven't been able to solve or work through comes together when you're having some downtime. Yes. So I think we we need to yeah. stop thinking that um, activity means productivity. Sometimes slowing right down is yes. where the pro- productivity happens. Uh, so making time to think.
0: Absolutely. And there's research evidence to support that.
1: Yeah, so I think making time to think and making time to write is really important and I guess for me writing has been a mm. savior. So I don't know whether uh, I mean some of some of what I'm writing about is saying that there is a therapeutic aspect to it but I think we all need to be creative and whether that's planning or drawing or whatever but mm. if it can be writing and you're writing Research papers about something that really um, turns you on and, and that is part of your values and, and inspirations, then I guess you, you can say you're ticking two boxes there. You're ticking your work box, but you're also ticking your personal box. So I think mm-hmm. writing is is a really wonderful. Uh, process and product if if people can lean mm-hmm. into writing as research. Uh, so that's definitely been a saviour for me as well because that's a, a slowing down process mm-hmm. and a thinking process as well. And the other thing that I guess I've turned my writing into is a collective process. So for a long time, I was sole author on lots of things and that wasn't how I wanted it to be. It was due to my supervisor retired at, right at the minute that my PhD was conferred and um, I took those career breaks <laughs> having children and, and when you shift to universities, you lose collaboration links and things like that and you have to start new mm. networks. So there's lots of things like that that can, can challenge collaboration. But this is why I think uh, finding like-minded people and um, caring for one another and writing groups and uh, writing collectively, they're all wonderful things for also supporting the productivity of the academic machine while also being fulfilling for, for the personal, uh, for the human being.
0: So I like the way that it doesn't have to be an either or.
1: No, it's an we and. We can
0: find a way to, we can find, a, yes, and it's finding what that and is for us as individuals.
1: Yes, and so you don't always have to say no. You certainly can say yes, but it's finding the and in the Yes.
0: Mm, yeah are there other things you talked about the importance of taking care of ourselves and being well and you talked about the way you plan and, and protect your weekends which I love I love I'd love to see the, the I planner can, maybe you I can, can send us a picture as well that I put on the <laughs> on the web page it's a bit crazy but yes I'm happy to do <laughs> that would that. be fun but what what else do you do to look after yourself to care for yourself
1: Um, I've still got a long way to go, so I've got a to-do list in a way. So I know I need to fit exercise uh, in much more uh, firmly into my timetable. And so I'm making decisions like instead of taking the lift, I will take the stairs and I'm making decisions to uh, Mm -hmm. choose, choose healthy meals and to take a break and uh, not just work right through things to actually uh, get out of my office and, and ideally come back and eat with a friend um, so that there is that, mm-hmm. that connection making. So it's those sorts of things. And I think the other thing, um, I mean, I, I read widely. Uh, and so I think that's helpful too. And I follow lots of different blogs. So I'm interested in preserving my own well-being. So I, I am also interested in my mental health and my spiritual health. So I follow blogs like Krista Tippett's On Being. Mm-hmm and and are inspired by that mm-hmm. um i read people like brene brown and um richard mm-hmm. raw uh, um you know different different thinkers uh and so yeah. i'm giving away yeah. this ideal that i have to strive for perfection uh that i have to um uh, be Somebody that I'm not, that I've got to aspire to be like that professor or, or this person. I'm going to be content to be me, mm-hmm. but I want to be the best version of me. So, um, yeah, I think mm-hmm. I, I think exposing ourselves to other viewpoints so we're not just hearing the university rhetoric, uh, and also to give time yeah. to listen to listening to ourselves and that voice that says when you know when you're reading something that's meaningful that you go. Oh, this is so where I am right now. Or this is such wonderful advice. I'm going to yeah. write that down, yeah. or I'm going to actually print out uh, that that quote and put it somewhere where I see it every day. So I think it's it's mm-hmm. it's doing stuff like that. And I've even, I mean, you're going to I'm going to sound like a nutcase a bit to your listeners, but I I think becoming intentional. <laughs> Is a visual thing as well. So I've created a vision board for myself that actually tracks things that I want to do and be in my work. So I want mm-hmm. to be present and I definitely want to create and I definitely want to write. And I want to spread kindness Mm. and I want to do no harm. So that's one for 2017, uh, something that I'm trying to think about every day is do no harm. I think that's really important Mm. in our workplaces. It's so easy to do harm um, with our students or with our colleagues or to ourselves. Uh, So so I think having... Having some yeah. tangible things that represent mm. your vision, and, and you know, for me, I'm a visual person, so I like um, a vision board type thing rather than writing a list of goals. <laughs> I don't like mm. goals that I have to mm. meet particularly. Um, <laughs> <It's> but, <difficult.
0: laughs> yeah, mm.
1: yeah, um, but I guess if they're in a nice planner form with a sticker, I, maybe, I like maybe, that.
0: But I, I like the fact that this vision board wasn't just about doing and achieving but being. Yes. And that the aspects that you were being and doing for covered, you know, work productivity things as well as caring for colleagues as well as caring for yourself.
1: Yeah, I think that is um, is just spot on. Uh, in, in Australia we have an early years framework called um, – Oh, I've just had a mind blank, but it's um, being and becoming are key words Mm -hmm. in there. And I should know because I refer to it all the time, being, belonging and becoming. Mm -hmm. And I think those three words are really important Mm -hmm. for us all. Um, And that being an educator is just as important as doing um you know doing the work of an educator so uh, i love that focus on being and becoming mm. and being versus doing because i think mm. we get caught up that we have to do all these mm. things and maybe if we are being a certain yeah. way as we do certain things that's the difference it's not it's not the doing of lots of things that that matters in the end mm. it's it's who we are when we do them
0: yeah And the becoming also is really nice because it says that we're on a journey that we can always be learning and exploring. That it is a process. It's it's not a destination. Is into you know, use a cliche.
1: That's right. And I think with becoming, it um, takes the pressure off. So there'll be days where you are um, steamrolled by the academic machine, and you have a shitty day, and things don't work out, and you snapped at somebody, or you've um mm. you know you didn't mm. you weren't the person that you wanted to be. But you can just wake up the next day and it's a fresh day and you can become into that person the next day and
0: we're always yeah. becoming. Mm, lovely. Um I Want to sort of be looking at uh, just wrapping up a little bit, but I'd I'd like to read something that you wrote on an article that you pointed me to on the Research Whisperer website that I think is just lovely and just reflects also so much of what you have talked about here and the, your presence here with us in this discussion. You know, and I say us with you know everyone who's been listening, um, and just. Reading from what you wrote, and this article is called Saved by Slow Scholarship, you say, it's important to shed light on our academic experiences to make public the stories of what it has felt like and feels like to be an academic. It's important that collective conversations about academic culture and what constitutes our social, political and intellectual life in the academy can take place. We need to share our findings on what matters to us and how we might cultivate kindness in the academy, foster careful work and count that which is not being counted. And I just want to thank you so much, Ali, for for living and being that here. Are there any sort of final thoughts that you would have or any things that you would like to say still I' just like to thank you for
1: the opportunity of of talking with you and and with your listeners and and just I guess that we need to find spaces of hope and um, and be differently in academia by by being ourselves.
0: and And you're a great role model for that process and seeing what that is. And I guess, we could encourage people to look at what might be their own version of the Wise Women Writing Group. And um, I, I recall Catherine Isbister talking about a group of friends who uh, have a call together, uh, I think she said every week or every fortnight, just to support one another and check in. And it seems like you know, that's her version of what, might be your wise women writing group. So maybe there's also encouragement for us to see about how we can, within our local context and with people that we connect with, find our own groups as well and start growing that.
1: That's right. And and I should say, I mean, I, I'm not being that good at, at um, adding to these sites, but As part of um, this process, I have created a couple of websites as spaces and resources. And like I said, I follow lots of blogs. So I encourage, you know, people to find their own, their own. Meaningful resources and blogs and and websites, but I have created two websites. If people are interested mm-hmm. in looking at them, one is um, it's called WiseWoman dot World, and there um, I've put a range of different resources, inspirational TED talks, mm-hmm. um, writing ideas, uh, just just a range of different things. I guess to to help us start listening and and gaining inspiration to what matters to us. And then the other website that I've created is uh, called Mm -hmm. thewomenwhowrite.com. So it's actually got the the in front because Women Who Write was already mm-hmm. taken by somebody else. So that's someone else's group. Uh, so if you go to the thewomenwhowrite.com, <laughs> there's also some links there about uh, what we're trying to do as a wider writers group. But I think it's important that you find mm-hmm. local connections because it's harder virtually with people that you don't know yeah. to kind of say, let's write together. Uh, so what yeah. you can do is put uh, conferences and writing ideas and, and support uh, blogs and, and things there. But I think um, whilst these websites and resources can be supportive and helpful, really it's in the everyday interactions with those nearby uh, that I think is going to make the difference uh, with people who are yeah. perhaps already in our lives yeah. that we just need to cultivate um, some stronger relationships or or set some set some goals like like we did um let's write a memoir and uh and just engage in a slow writing process and see where that takes us so you don't need to actually just identify what the Mm.
0: exact output's going to be but maybe you set upon a process and the the, the key thing in that process is just the connecting with one another exactly and as you said the listening sharing and responding yes a key part Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you're a wonderful woman. <laughs> uh, thank you for sharing. Yes, thank you. So thank Geraldine. you, Ali. Thank you, Geraldine. You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change ACAD Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently.